Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking The Defiant Ones, HBO's excellent documentary about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's talk The Defiant Ones. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. And today, we're talking about HBO's new documentary, The Defiant Ones, a documentary chronicling the relationship between Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre. And it is pretty fantastic. So um, that's my uh, one-word criticism of it. But uh, I'm going to kick it over to Christian for a little bit of uh, backstory here. Yeah, so, I mean, this... this Defiant Ones tells the story of two industry icons, uh, Dr. Dre and, and Jimmy Iovine, um, and it does it in four parts. Um, it's like five, did you say like five hours long? Um, and, you know, it, it really covers how each sort of blazed their, their path to success individually, um, and then sort of how in the 1990s their, their tales sort of intertwined, and, uh, and I guess they, they conquered the music industry together. Um, it's... Uh, it, you know, it obviously, it's it's a sort of character sketch of both of these guys, and it shows them to be sort of extraordinarily ambitious and sort of, you know, to a certain extent, I think also sort of eccentric outliers um, with a with a ton of individual talent. Um, and you know, I think one of the advantages of it is that it doesn't completely shy away from some of their failures. I mean, of course, it it actually opens um, with uh, with the footage of um, Tyrese and and Dre. Um, you know, celebrating on a Thursday or Friday night, um, saying they're the first, you know, billionaire in rap, or Dre's the first billionaire in rap, um, which, of course, nearly blew up and, and sank the deal uh, that, that Dre had just uh, locked in with, with Apple for Beats headphones. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, that sort of set the tone, I thought, as something that was going to be a little bit critical and, and um, uh, a little bit more critical of these guys and, and sort of some of their, uh, some of their vices as well. Um, you know, I think one of the most notable parts of this is just how insanely star-studded it is. Um, you know, it's it's because these guys, I guess, are, are still at the top of their game, really, and, and sort of at the height of their powers. Um, they still have a lot of uh, a lot of influential friends, and a lot of uh, a lot of celebrities. You know, get on here to talk about them: Bono, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Gwen Stefani, Patti Smith, Stevie Nicks, Diddy, Nas. DOC, Kendrick Lamar, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, Lady Gaga, and Trent Reznor are the ones that I have written down, um, but I may have, uh, many I may more. have missed a few. Yeah, yeah and, exactly. and, and um, you know, the former Mrs. Iovine and among others. Um, I, I will say, just jumping in and, and not to interrupt, but uh, I, you know, give a lot of credit to um, uh, Alan Hughes, the director, for um, really making this an interesting and lively, because I'd seen another doc that's on uh, Netflix currently, I think, or Amazon, called uh, Five Came Home, which is about five directors who went to World War II uh, and sort of honed their craft while making um, film and, you know, documentary about the war, what was happening. And to be honest with you, it it was so reverent and so... Um, 
you know, people, people had such awe for the folks that it's about that it really came off as like a retirement video. And this really doesn't. This is, this is people sort of speaking their mind and, and telling the truth. And so uh, hosannas to yeah, it, uh, Alan Hughes for, for getting the truth out of people. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that I, and I was, what I was about to say was that sort of my bottom line, my take on this is that, you know, it's an absolute must-see. Um, and the only time when I thought it veered a little bit off course and sort of I, that I thought was sort of an odd moment was, was that the sort of the section in episode four when they're talking about Beats headphones, which is, of course, the latest sort of entrepreneurial or, the, the, you know, venture by, by Dre and Iovine. Um, that feels a little bit like an advertisement for those things. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, this, this is you're absolutely right. Like this, this does tell both sides of the story. Um, even if it gives a little bit more time to uh, to the positive side. Oh, yeah. Well, and that segues into kind of, you know, sort of my applauding Hughes as well. And and first off, you know, like you both said, this is sort of infinitely watchable. I, I just finished it recently. We'll probably watch it again uh, with my wife who didn't view it the first time with me. It's just a lot of fun to watch, um, both because it's a great story, even if you don't like the, the music or the musicians involved. It's just an it's just an awesome American story about you know two guys coming really from nothing and, and becoming it's the American dream right becoming huge successes happens to be about music which is what this pod's about and what we talk about all the time so even better but one of the things that you know I kind of noticed right away is is these are, are two you know Iveen Lest but certainly Dre fairly private people doing their thing and uh, you know I think Hughes obviously had the trust of both these guys and had a lot of uh, leeway with using footage. Um, from both their past lives, obviously access to, to family members and to, to people close to them. So, you know, with your Beats advertisement, I think the one criticism I would have, too, is that, you know, obviously any documentary about you produced and, and sort of uh, funded for you is going to, uh, you know, make you look good and, and also um, probably promote some of the things that you want to promote. But that said, it, um, you know, I, I think two things, like style, the way this documentary looks, it's one of the, the you know, and, and it helps to have very exotic locations, but I think it's one of the, the best visual documentaries I've seen in a long time. Just really, really great cinematography, um, you know, ho- as, as it should be since it's a music doc about, you know, two sort of geniuses in the music world. Um, the soundtrack's amazing. Um, and then the, the access to footage and access to these guys. And, and I think more, like I said, Dre than Iveen, who's, who's a very social person who, who obviously has, has had his name out there for a decade longer than Dre. Um, you really got a little bit of an intimate feeling um, around both guys. And that takes a lot of trust, you know, especially when you're talking about somebody making a film about your life. Yeah, you have to you have to go back, um, you know, to understand the roots of this, which is that um, Alan Houston, his brother, um, made their bones originally by directing hip hop videos in the late '80s, early '90s as as um, young twenties um, guys and, and so, guys in their young twenties, I should say. And um, so they've actually known a lot of these uh, folks uh, from the original time. They were there uh, for the original, um, you know, sort of outburst of, of popularity and, and uh, notoriety um, that Dre. Dre received, and so I imagine that that um, you know that these are that these are people that you know. If, I'm sure they're um, you know longtime uh, colleagues, but it seems they must also be to a certain degree friends because uh, you know Dre is remarkably private, and um, you know this was pretty candid footage. 
I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, and, and as you said, you know, I, I, <clears throat> any of the, um, you know, any of the doubt that you might have about something being sort of a, a positive spin on on, uh, on on these two characters, like, look, you d- you just you don't you don't choose subjects and get them to cooperate for your documentary um, unless <laughs> unless at the end of the day they sort of come out on top, right? Um, you know, it's not like we concluded that, like, Jiro from Jiro Dreams of Sushi had, like, the second best sushi restaurant in Tokyo. <laughs> like, you wouldn't do that. I, I will counter by saying I'm looking forward to OJ Made in America Part 6. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the, fair enough. Um, cool. So do you guys uh, do you guys want to take a little break, and then we'll come back, and we can sort of dig into the, the partnership between these two guys and... Um, uh, and sort of, you know, some of the some of the controversies in the '90s and a few other things. Sounds great. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We are, today we're talking about The Defiant Ones, uh, HBO's documentary uh, about the story of Jimmy Ivey and Dr. Dre's improbable partnership. Um, you know, I think it, it, it starts from, you know, sort of their biographical uh, info. One's East Coast, one's West Coast. Iovine, Italian immigrant family, uh, staunch Catholic. Uh, you, you could tell that um, he never spent a day of his life uh, as a child in want of anything. He and his, uh, his mother and his sister uh, waited on him hand and foot. And then you have Dre, on the contrary, a very uh, troubled and difficult uh, life growing up in Compton in the 80s uh, with a mother who, again, was very dedicated, but a, a family that was uh, torn apart by uh, some, some uh, bad relationships and um, ultimately, uh, you know, some tragedy. So, Christian, you know, I mean, I, again, I, try and put some, uh, try and paint a, a broader picture of the, why this is such an oddball relationship. Well, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, part of it is, uh, part of it is just the fact that, you know, the backgrounds that they come from um, are, are sort of so fundamentally different, as you say. I mean, I think there are sort of broad or, or sort of like crude similarities you know they were both producers first um but uh and and of course you know both uh you know both grew up sort of lower middle class or or um in you know in cities so there was a, a and in, in families that you know were pretty musical it sounded like in jimmy Iovine's case he got 
interested in music basically at the end of high school um, when uh, when he by the sounds of things, I guess it were, were he sort of failed out of uh, his first year of, um, of of college, I guess, um, and and realized that you know this was a this was a job that was going to provide him endless amounts of sort of uh, entertainment. And, had a had and, a few bands too, and uh, failed out of those. Oh yeah, I guess that's right. Um, but you know, I think that the the reason it was it was unlikely um, is just. Basically, the fact that you know by the time they did link up, one was uh, one was a music executive and the other was um, the other was a producer, um, so they weren't necessarily on even footing. I mean, what do you think? Well, he was a producer and a performer. I mean, he was you know NWA was a massive uh, you know a so, a social cultural juggernaut in the late '80s um, that you know sort of burned out pretty fast because of the industry and the way that. Um, you know, the industry, the way they interacted with the industry. I mean, you know, Ice Cube and Dre was a pretty formidable team. Uh, I should say Ice Cube, Dre, Eazy-E, the whole, the whole gang, Yellen, uh, um, you know, the, the whole of NWA was, was you know, uh, tremendous uh, when they came out and was really stripped of their, you know, brotherhood uh, almost immediately by shitty management. And so, um, you know, I think Dre more or less retreated into being a producer, um, but also carried on NWA. And then when NWA ultimately... He never liked, he never liked rapping, though. I mean, that, that's sort of, you know, never one of the... Thing. no. Yeah, no, he's never enjoyed it. And, you know, as he says pretty bluntly on this, uh, in the documentary, he hates the sound of his voice and thinks it sounds weird on, on a record. Um, well, not to mention the fact that he doesn't write his own raps. Yeah, but there's, um, a, but, there's, you know, a, whole, there's a whole... Uh, Fan base, uh, a very very significant fan base that would beg to differ too. There's a lot of people who love that guy as a rapper and a producer. So. I'm one of them. Yeah. Well, and you also get there by. I mean, I think the way that Hughes kind of sets this up is is pretty cool. And I think episode one is really about the climb of these guys, and and, and so like you mentioned, the backstories of their lives. But then also, you know, I mean, somebody like Jimmy Iovine's first sort of mixing gig was with John Lennon, right? And then on to Bruce Springsteen. I mean, it was it was almost like and like you did, do. Did you enjoy the Did you enjoy the uh, the potentially completely apocryphal story about um, how he nearly he was he was hanging his head in the studio and nearly quit? He was like engineer number three, <laughs> right, yeah. and uh, and then what? George Harrison or John Lennon came over? No, it was John Lennon because it was his solo album. Um, came over and gave him a little pep talk yeah. and uh, said, you know, you're great, just stick at it. And it was like, is this, come on. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, Trey obviously doing the, you know, just pure ambition on the DJ side and uh, having the musical talent. And I think through episode in one, you really, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's pre those guys meeting, correct? So it's sort of like the 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 career's trajectory is, is both guys sort of climbing the ladder yeah. Um, in different ways, you know, and, and Jimmy Iovine, you know, obviously through sort of traditional rock and production, which ends with him just being burned out with U2, and, and, and Dre, when what you were talking about, sort of NWA blowing up, so these guys had success, uh, the tragic death of his brother, which, you know, crushes the guy, and but, you know, at the same time is, is sort of so private, so driven, so sort of like internalized that the studio is his only escape. Followed by the death of Easy E and his mother. Right, exactly. So, and I think that's what's really kind of, you know, cool and also kind of, you know, what we talked about earlier, where the doc, you know, shows these guys kind of hit bottom in a sense in their careers, even though they both had had, 
you know, success and had kind of built up that success. And that's where, you know, I think the genius of, of um, Iveen kind of like, what's next for me? And he has this sort of obsession with with people that are doing things that he wants to do. Like, I sort of saw it as a guy like, okay, David Geffen has a successful record label. I can't produce artists anymore. First of all, and, and this is another theme that we should talk about, you know, Iveen is very much driven by money, right? Um, and, you know, nobody's cr- criticizing, or at least I'm not criticizing that. I think that that's a, a huge driver in a lot of people's lives. But he saw that, you know, producing records is not exactly gonna gonna put you over the top in the in the cash department. But hey, you know, Geffen is doing doing that, and he's making a ton of money. Dre, on the other hand, you know, was was just kind of looking for an out from the Easy E piece, and and ended up uh, running into uh, Suge Knight and being able to have some freedom and have the type of studio and the type of, uh, you know, sort of ability to make the music that he wanted to make in, in his next journey. And it kind of happens at the same time. Um, and then we can kind of talk about what happens from there. But, you know, I, I thought that was a really cool build up to how these two unlikely characters meet. And I think with Iveen's, on Iveen's case, it really was like, you know, that guy had a, an open mind, unlike I think a lot of, folks coming out of that 70s um, rock and roll world did. And then Dre just, you know... Yeah, his, his ability to really embrace hip-hop and, and rap in the early 90s, like, put him... I mean, put him in a, a sort of unusual position, I think, to, to capitalize on, on the upswing and, and sort of expansion of that, um, of that genre. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that does make him kind of an outlier. Like, uh, you know, not everybody had that sort of open-minded attitude. Um, and, you know, he... He recognized what was so. One of the one of the sort of moments that really stuck out to me was when Dre was talking about the fact that he'd shopped his first album, uh, which he'd done completely around. himself, which is amazing. He'd done it completely <laughs> himself at yeah at and home. Found I mean, and, and, Sorry, and found Snoop. Sorry to interrupt. And found Snoop. Yep. Um, and uh, you know he'd shopped it around to a dozen labels, all of whom had you know basically told him to sod off. And um, and you know Jimmy Iovine heard it and just sort of thought. Holy shit! This is this is some of the best production I've ever heard. I mean, this is this guy. This is incredible. He was like, "Where did you do this? Or or who did this? Who helped you?" Um, you know, and he was like, uh, "At home and no one." Yeah. Um, and you know that that alone, I think, sort of was the it was ultimately the the bedrock of of that partnership was the fact that they both have a ton of respect for that craft. Um, and you know, I think that that was that was really sort of uh, that, that's an important part of the trust that um, you know that's at the root of and the, sort of built a lifelong trust and friendship. And the flip side to that yeah. is when Dre was shopping that album, and when and I very much were kind of around for this period, it was a toxic thing. So NWA had come out and sort of started a chain reaction of, of toxicity around um, you know gangster rap and, you know, controversial lyrics and swearing. And, and it hit the record industry very hard at the time. So you had the PRMC, you had, you know, it wasn't just rap. It was sort of metal music and, and Satan, you know, death metal and um, alternative music. Anything that really had curse words or, or sort of, um, you know, that kids love. Negative ta- messages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talked about in the past. And so here's a guy, and, and I think like any risk-reward situation, I think, and, and this is where you got to give... I've mean, a lot of credit. A, you're 100% right. Sonically, it blew him away. And, and the first time, you know, I absolutely remember hearing G-Thing for the first time. I'd heard, actually, the the single that Dre and Snoop put out prior um, from Deep Cover, and I'm forgetting the name of the song, but all I remember is the chorus, One Nick Seven on the Undercover Cup, which is... 
Yeah, and and I, I want to say like it's Snoop called Deep Cover. Deep yeah. Cover. Okay, great. Yeah, and and that song blew me away. I mean, we were everybody just Snoop was amazing on that and Dre was amazing Dre like Iveen I think you know never felt super comfortable with his own rapping but found people that could could make up for that and and, and you know in eight in spades and then you know we heard you think at the same time I was in high school at the time and it was just like whoa this is it you know like this is yeah. the jam I mean before the album was even out and the Ooh. single was out this was the jam but the risk reward there was Iveen was smart enough to say like this is toxic, this is going to be a huge hit, and I'm going to be the guy who makes a, a ton of money with this guy on it, you know? Yeah, and that's a, that's a really, I mean, the, well, two, two things in response to that. One, yeah, it does feel like with, with the, you know, a single moment, a single track, like uh, a, a new sound, a West Coast sound was born, and the center of gravity shifted back um, away from New York City, or at least it had a different pull all of a sudden. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, to your next point, though, I the, this is the sort of fascinating thing about this documentary is that I ne- I'm not sure it ever fully resolved for me whether Iovine was like um, you know whether he was wedding controversy because uh, he fundamentally I mean I, I think at some level he does fundamentally believe like okay censorship is stupid and like I'm gonna make a stand on this because come on it's these like these are words this is music it's good stuff um, but I also think. You know, there was a part of him that, as you as you rightly say, um, saw dollar signs in controversy. Absolutely. And, you know, and but those things aren't, I guess, mutually exclusive. No, not at all. I think Jimmy Iovine's great talent is is recognizing rather than you know most industry executives, most record industry, a lot of entertainment industry executives in general are people who are constantly looking for the next the version reverse. of what's of what's popular currently, and they're yeah. not very good at being visionary about what will be popular and Jimmy Iovine was pretty visionary about what will be popular as opposed to as opposed to okay you know Stetsasonic is big let's find the next Stetsasonic or you know uh, CNC Music Factory is big let's find the next CNC Music Factory well and and to be totally like blunt about it I mean that that you know risk taking uh, at, at that at that level I mean is like typically something that CEOs are discouraged from doing it's, you know it's, so it's like they're yeah, yeah well it's it's and and you know what it, it's like taking massive artistic risks is not necessarily something that like people who are running responsible businesses that have shareholders are like thinking of that they should do so I mean you know you want the you're better you're better going for the sure slightly less Absolutely. profitable thing and this guy was just going for um uh, you know, just just home run after home run after home run. But I mean, those you know. But so I think he saw, that's he saw where the I, envelope was being pushed and went there. Yeah, I was I was gonna say there's something that I I, I agree with you guys to a, a degree, but I don't. And, and I'm the one who actually said the risk, and, and there is risk involved in this, and, and he took the risk. But he wasn't he wasn't exactly grabbing Dr. Dre before NWA. You know what I mean? So there was everybody that he kind of touched, including the '70s artists. Had, had seen success, maybe not the full potential of success. And I think that's where he is really smart, where he, he, he kind of gets things that aren't, that aren't sure things, that have risk, so there's a higher reward, but they have a groundwork laid out for him. He's great at taking uh, acts that have established a medium level of success and taking them stratospheric. That's what he's great at. You don't, he's not a guy who's... You know, probing the tiny clubs to see, you know, to find the next, 
you know, uh, big thing at their first show. He's somebody who finds talent that is that is becoming established and then makes them superstars. Yeah, but you okay, okay. Two two things about this, and I, this is where I really I disagree with that. I, I think I mean I, certainly he does that for sure. Um, he he does take. Uh, you know, people who are popular and, and have, you know, the chops and then send them stratospheric. But, like, Gwen Stefani in No Doubt, I mean, I, like, he, he, how much younger were you going to get him? She was, what, like, 17? Um, yeah, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I felt like that was, like, weren't they, like, in trying out for him as, like, a talent thing? I mean, it wasn't like they were in some club in L.A. that he went and, and found them. They sort of were... What the hell difference does that make? Like that's that's still recognizing talent young. I mean, yeah, like just because you but have it's, the it's not it's to, not seeking out you know to win's point. I mean, like yeah, it's like a star search thing. No you doubt, can grab no people a, off of well, he's, American Idol I mean, like, too, which people do today all the time. Or you no know. doubt was a fairly popular local band, and then when Gwen Stefani came on as their singer, um, it, it became a different. You know, that's when you know they sort of changed direction. But you know, they had they had a a relatively you know they they had. A few records that they had, they they pulled a pretty good audience before uh, she joined the band. Um, well, I guess what I'm confused band. about is if that doesn't count as finding somebody, if creating the infrastructure that allows uh, Eminem to be found by Dre, you know, it was like it was it, it was in his garage, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess my question is, who's the who is the example of the industry executive or of the producer? What like who's the who is the guy you're thinking of who finds these acts smaller? I think there's a number of them. I mean, I think we talked about Stiff Records in the last one. I mean, someone like Seymour Stein uh, took a mm-hmm. bigger chance. Those on are much like bigger Mad- chances. Yeah. Yeah, Madonna and people like that than you know than say and the Ramones than. I think Madonna was establishing for herself a uh, a reputation that was like it, I mean as big as what you're describing with no doubt locally right like she was you know yeah. she had these club songs that, that were circulating around New York and then somebody put some money behind it um, and it and it got big quickly mm-hmm. I mean I think as far as the Ramones are concerned. When eras. were they ever as popular as No Doubt? They weren't. That's not my point. My point is that, they, yeah. they, that we're talking about finding something in its infancy. It doesn't really matter in this case, but, I mean, we're splitting hairs. We're talking about finding something in its infancy rather than finding something that is in its adolescence as far as its development goes. Well, and, and we can also, sorry to interrupt, you can also say the majority of the acts that he touched. I mean, No Doubt is a bit of an outlier. I mean, that's yeah, fine. Tom yeah. Petty, Stevie Nicks. Well, he didn't. He was producing at that point. That, they yeah. weren't Interscope Records. I mean, we're talking about like when he actually heads up a label. That was right. that so was the backtrack a second. I, think his, I mean, his I think personal opinion matters in that case. For our listeners who we, we didn't mention, when when the Dre and and uh, you know Iveen relationship merge, it's when Interscope Records takes on Death Row Records, and and then what we're referring to is sort of the success. Uh, the extremely in, insane success that Interscope Records had um, throughout the 90s with all the artists and, and no doubt being one of them. And, and now we're splitting hairs on, on <laughs> how that happened. Yeah, but, well, Marilyn Manson, yeah. I mean... Yeah, and, and no, look, I mean, you know, like you had Nine Inch Nails, Marilyn Manson, uh, Prime Nine Inch Nails had huge. already established themselves, um, which I, I agree with completely. Like Trent, I mean, they were already popular. They were They were... Very much known to be the best, the next big thing, and 
the documentary does very well to go into the fact what that he you did, know, which they was, were being courted by a bunch of labels. What he did, which was wise, was take the sharpest guys on, on his roster and allow them to find exactly. to scout talent. So that's where you that's where Dre finds Eminem. That's where uh, Trent Reznor finds Marilyn Manson. I mean, he had you know the the, the true artistic uh, cogs in this wheel are actually going out and finding. Um, new talent and Jimmy Iovine is facilitating their careers and also seeing that they are going to, you know, seeing, reading the tea leaves and seeing what he think, you know, what he, right. you know, visual, visionarily seeing what's going to be popular a few I, years ahead of anybody I else. I guess the, I guess the hard part for me is, is that, you know, simply because you've, you've delegated, I mean, you've given people the, the space to do that and to, to be creative and to use their better judgment and have taste. That's like being an executive with a great team of A and R's. Um, you know, the the roster of the That's label was. was populated. Was, yeah. yeah, exactly. But he also found Lady Gaga, Marilyn Manson, and no doubt. So I, I guess I just I'm not really sure what the. I would say Trent found Marilyn It sounds like there's a knock I- implicit in what you're saying, and I'm not really sure. Well, let's nope. circle back to it because I I have some thoughts, and and I think we should conclude just sort of our thoughts on the doc, and we can we can certainly he, talk. He does about. have unbelievably awful fashion sense. Yeah, he does. But let's also talk about just the, the, you know, we've named a lot of names, but I think we were going to kind of touch on, you know, the people that won out during this and then the people that kind of lost out during this run. And uh, why don't we, I mean, we mentioned some of the winners here. So Interscope Records, huge winner. I mean, this was the the sort of last uh, just printing money <laughs> in record industry. Yeah. And it wasn't, it was the it was the most lucrative time, and, and I mean, it should be so the backdrop for this is the 1990s, which of course, you know, people are buying CDs. CDs are cheaper to produce than tapes or vinyl, but they were actually being sold for more money. Um, you know, this is literally hand over fist the most lucrative gold rush in the music and the guy hit with. History. I mean, so you know, yeah, and, and he so had what I think he was also genius at was, and I think this happens a lot in the music industry, is there's an underground sound, whether it's the the industrial sound of, of Nine Inch Nails or there's the, the sort of street hip-hop of, of Dre and, and the scoff, uh, California, SoCal punk of, of No Doubt or the Nirvana of, of the Bush. And he put the, the he got artists that could put the gleam on the on those sounds. And I'll put Nine Inch Nails aside a little bit from that, but I'll, I'll include Marilyn Manson in this, and and make it sort of a commercialized, you know, big big money, big seller, uh, you know, kind of uh, groups. And and I think all of those groups that were on Interscope, with few exceptions, you know, had sounds that were were kind of, you know, in the fringe and made those sounds very mainstream. Yeah, well, there was a huge premium put on style still at that point. The video was still a big thing. And, you know, you basically, Bush was, you know, mainstream alternative rock with a really good-looking lead singer. No Doubt was, you know, a fun party band with a really good-looking yeah. lead singer. You know, Marilyn Manson Shock was, Theater, you know, Alice Cooper, um, you know, there, for the next... Uh, <laughs> was Shock Theater, yeah, exactly. Maybe not, not the exact same formula, though, yeah. No, 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 no but it was... Waiting for the, really, for the thread of really good-looking lead singer. With a really dynamic... Like, with a really dynamic... Purposely, yeah, uh, scary-looking yes, lead sure. singer. Well, and I mean, similarly, the, the you know, his find in Lady Gaga, um, which, you know, I, I think was also... There, there were a lot of doubters early on because, I mean, you know, it was basically somewhere between mm-hmm. Deep House and Disco, um, which weren't necessarily top of the pop charts at that time. You know, like, 
wind the clock forward 10 years, um, and the entire, like, top of the pop charts is basically electronic right mm-hmm. now. Um, so, Again, I mean, he, he really does have this. Always to back, yeah. which is good. You know, that's the Yeah, smart. no, it's, it's, it's an interesting, um, I mean, it, it just, it strikes me as just an, uh, uh, an incredible run of success, even if it's not a also, lot of my favorite also, artists. Like, you know, but also it's, you know, I mean, I think, it, you know, part and parcel of what we talk about on this, it's aging, it's like most people do not have that, keep that Midas touch yeah. as they age. And, you know, right. part of that is delegating, part of that is, you know, and then wisely, but knowing that you have to, as opposed to being like, no, no, I still know what the best thing in the world is. It's, you know, part of that is, you know, uh, having it, part of it is having a vision and, and knowing how to, how to, you know, set well, flip it over. Yeah. And uh, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I think, you know, even as we talk about a lot, like I even find in myself sometimes that I get locked into a set of tastes that I developed younger. Absolutely. And, you know, the way that this guy is, I mean, he is constantly evolving, evol- evolving and becoming more accepting of, of new sounds. And by the way, it should be said that, like, I mean, we've yeah, been talking a lot about Jimmy Iovine, but, like, <laughs> you know, there are some amazing, amazing, amazing scenes of Dre, like, you know, sitting there listening to Kraftwerk at his, like, you know, beach villa. Um, and uh, who, oh, and Nirvana as well. He's, like, rocking out. It to, opened with that. Yeah, it opened with yeah. him saying Nirvana. Well, let's flip it to Dre shit. for a second as um, we're in the yeah. winter circle. Unless you guys want to take a quick break, but we could talk Dre quickly or. Oh, yeah. To Dre. Let's, okay, sounds let's good. Let's do that, and then we'll come back take to Take a Dre. quick break, and I'll tell you about the time I met at Marilyn Manson. Podcast. Today we're talking about the Defiant Ones, uh, HBO's documentary, um, the Chronicles, uh, Chronicles, uh, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, and we're going to switch over and, and talk a little bit more about Dre at the moment because uh, he had a pretty, ins- uh, you know, pretty chaotic uh, few years in the '90s and uh, came through it um, smelling like a rose. So, you guys want to? Jump in. Yeah, I mean, well, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about The Chronic and the success of The Chronic, um, obviously followed up by Doggy Style, by Snoop Dogg, and, you know, another another sort of scenario where Iveen and Dre kind of worked together, but also Suge Knight was in the picture, and, and, and um, you know, jumped Tupac on board, which, 
I, mean, I guess we could talk about, you guys want to talk about the demise of, de of Death Row, even though that kind of, sort of let's talk about some of the losers of the situation and then, and then aftermath and then Dre's kind of resurgence there? Sure. But I am a little worried about Suge Knight coming and killing me. I'm, uh, I, would be, I would be if I were you, so we'll keep it brief. <laughs> but, um, you know, Suge Knight and, and this crew kind of started to live the, the, the lifestyle that, that they were rapping about. And, and you know, it started the East Coast, West Coast at the Source Awards, or the BT Awards. It was one of those no, two. No, Source Awards. Source Awards. And, um, you know, where Suge Knight basically came out and, and, and called Bad Boy Records exec and, and uh, the star of the label at the time. Uh, Biggie, you know, uh, a, a bad word and a couple bad words. Bitches. And, and uh, yeah, and, and so it, it just kind of blew up and, and culminated in the in the death, in, in the actual death of Biggie and Tupac. And we can talk Tupac really quickly. I mean, Tupac was a guy that, that started on the East Coast, ended up in death row, and, and things just got really ugly really fast. And uh, I think I, I give Dre sort of some of the most credit here. This was... This was scary footage, scary part of the documentary, and I'm probably going to criticize Iveen and, and some of his folks as well here, but Dre at one point just in the documentary says, you know what, like, I don't need this, I don't want this, and I'm walking away, and uh, literally walked away from, you know, the, the label, the money, and, and all the things that were going on. Left everything on the table, which I, you know, it's, I mean, it was, obviously it was, oh, oh, in retrospect, a wise move. But a, a really gutsy move at the time, and um, you know, it, it just you know, I think uh, uh, to borrow um, uh, a sad parlance from uh, uh, Bad Boys, shit got real. Shit did get real, and uh, and I think on the other end, you know, uh, Interscope and Iveen stuck by uh, Suge Knight and tried to mentor basically a monster. I mean, the guy really comes across as what he is, which is like a, a thug and a monster. And, and you can see, like, there's one scene where Snoop is, like, hugging him at, at something, and you can see him, like, you know, talking shit in the guy's ear, and, and Snoop literally looks scared. Um, no offense, Snoop, but uh, who's, who's hilarious in this doc throughout. Um, you know, Tupac dies. I think, you know, in my opinion, we can talk about this a little bit here, too. I think there was a little bit of a blind eye turned. I mean, the one thing that, that really kind of hit me was the, uh, you know, the the pride in, in making, a, instead of $150 million, uh, $200 million when when Interscope got bought out, which is absolutely fine. Again, no qualms there, but it, it, there sort of was but like... like there a few was, people died. Yeah, a few yeah. people died, and there was a little bit of like, hey, uh, it was sort of out of control. We didn't know what was going on. It's like, uh, you guys are all pretty bright, you know? <laughs> you've you've yeah. had a lot of success. And, and the justification seems to be like, you know, that, well, if these guys came from, like, violent backgrounds or something like that, um, and, uh, you know, therefore, like, you know, what are you going to do? Boys will be boys. And it's like... No, like somebody needs to explain that, you know, you guys are making a shit ton of money now. This is it. You've arrived. You don't like don't behave like that anymore. And by the way, uh, like, you know, get the get the maniac out of there. Yeah. Or you know, buy him out guy. or do whatever you need to do. You know, it was, there was one guy who was obviously the problem here. If I were to defend, you know, offer any defense, it's that it was totally unprecedented. It really, you know, wasn't like, oh, this is happening again. It was really the first time. You know that kind of thing had ever uh, really erupted, and and you know there was a lot of um, you know there, a lot of posturing, um, you know a lot of sort of role playing of sorts, uh, and and chronicling what was really going on in the world. But it was uh, you know once you know once people started actually taking uh, you know I mean it, Ivan did have that 
one interesting quote um, in in the middle of I think number three, where he said, you know, you guys are gangsters, but gangsters whole MO is always trying to go legit. You're already wealthy. Why are you behaving like, why are you turning into gangsters when you've already done the thing you set out to do? And I don't think he was on the same, I don't think that was the same mindset that any of those guys, you know, that those guys had. And, and well, and my uh, only, my only counter to that, and we'll jump to Dre is that, you know, I think these guys enjoyed, you know, there's that sort of tough guy executive mentality and, and, you know, the, you know, F-bombs and we're going to get this guy and we're going to make millions of dollars and da da And I think there was some enjoyment yeah. in playing football in at your house the with Suge Knight yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, having this stuff kind of go south and not maybe stepping in enough. But, well, but I can sorry. also imagine, I mean, I just, you know, to be honest, I can imagine being in a situation where, like, if you're the guy who is, you know, basically championing free speech and the more outrageous the, the stuff that's said, the more money seems to pour in the door, whether it's Marilyn Manson or whomever, it's like, look, you, you look around and, and nobody else is actually following through with the stuff they're singing or rapping about. Um, maybe why would you expect these guys to, yeah. you know, be different? I, I yeah. sorry, That's my only point in saying it's unprecedented. I mean, this was, a, you know, this was an outlier of a situation where, you know, I mean, but it, it, there is a bit of that, you know, if you get your child, Common sense, get yeah. your child a tiger for its birthday, at some point the tiger's <laughs> going to grow up and eat the child and it's going to be your fault. Well, I think we can we can all agree <laughs> that, that is that a saying, <laughs> or is that just it like is now. You just come up with that now? Yeah, <laughs> it is now. It's just, I think just we can kidding. all agree that the clear losers in the documentary, and it's actually sort of a sad part. Um, Suge Knight, for sure. Tupac, rest in peace. Um, they you know, to the extent they mention it. Easy, yeah. And then the uh, the Warner uh, exec, Mark Fuchs, who tried which to, I will tried give to, I, who I give enormous credit for showing up. For yeah, the absolutely. Absolutely. But let's talk about the aftermath. To, to deliver of, the line, everybody made money but me. <laughs> Not only that, but to, to be the uh, to be the punchline in, in the great Jimmy yeah. Iovine line yeah. where the guy being a you know cocky bastard said, I'm the Michael Jordan of management. And Iovine says, well, this is baseball. I think that's one of the funnier <laughs> lines I've heard in a long time. It's a great yeah. line. Well, let's talk about the aftermath of Dre's... Uh, Post uh, death row and the aftermath of having kind of an album that flopped, and, which uh, is actually called Aftermath. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Which which led us to a, probably one of our favorite parts of the doc um, when he finds Eminem. Yeah, Christian, that was uh, that was really revelatory. I know you love that. You want to take uh, you want to take sure reins on Yeah, no, I mean one of my favorite moments was so you know of course the Chronic was a was a big success. Aftermath was not. Um, and for pretty good reason. Um, I think uh, what what followed um, was a pretty impressive one-two punch that was a really defining, you know, period in, in time for me. I mean, I was uh, just, just because of how old I was. Um, but it was basically his discovery of Eminem, um, and there's this incredible scene, and, and you know, um, seriously, kudos to, to Alan Hughes for, for digging up this footage. I, I, I'd never seen it before, and I don't, I don't think it's been out there in circulation. Um, this really was a, a diamond in the rough, though, because it is actually the scene of, you know, Dre basically digs up a tape of, um, you know, he's, he's having trouble, you know, finding a sort of creative spark, and Iveen says, look, go, you know, go into my storage room or whatever, um, I have a million demos in there. You know, people constantly sending him stuff. He's like, just, just listen, just listen to music and and find what you like again. You know, find your 
your center, whatever it is. And, um, you know, Dre's in there and he, and he like throws on this demo by this kid, you know, Eminem. And he's just like, holy shit, what is this? Like, I got to find this guy. And so within three days, he's flown Eminem out to L.A. Um, you know, his life is changing pretty quickly. Uh, signed him to Interscope. Um, and you actually have the video of Eminem walking into Dre's, uh, Dre's studio in his house. And then they're sort of getting to know each other still and feeling each other out. And, and Dre just sort of hits play on this instrumental he's been working on. And it's the instrumental from My Name Is. And you just see within, like, five or six seconds, you know, Eminem sort of, like, getting getting with the flow, and then just all of a sudden, hi, my name is, and you're just like, holy, you know, like, this is actually, I'm watching this thing happen in real time, and that's just, like, that's so exciting. That's I, alchemy. I can't, I mean, yeah, it's awesome. It's really, like, a great moment. I mean, when you, you compared it to, you know, it's like, it's if all of a sudden we found a video of, uh, of Keith Richards, you know, like, picking out the, uh, the satisfaction hook. And passing um, out. Yeah, exactly. You know, it is that kind of um, that kind of you know genius moment, and just uh, and of course, uh, you know, Eminem's success speaks for itself. But um, but even after that, I think you know the next uh, the next big success for Dre was was coming back with two thousand one, um, which is an album I absolutely love, uh, and I think one in which you know he really shows off sort of his um, sort of reflective, introspective side, um, and you know looks back on his career. Uh, and and sort of you know talks about how far he's come. Yeah. One one question I have for you because you know I, uh, I don't I haven't followed that uh, as closely the, his career as closely. Um, we, I you know I had always heard rumblings about detox you know potentially being his next album, but I was never like one of those people that was waiting by you know my computer waiting for it to drop. What was was there that much of a is it that you know sort of legendary is it that you know sort of thing that people were anticipating um and just holding their breath for that didn't that never arrived or is it just sort of one of those things that was a yeah. project that he shelved i mean i i think that it, it's hard to imagine that it actually happens and there's actually a pretty funny moment at the end of this when even snoop says like I've been waiting for that damn thing for 17 years. Like, come on, man. Yeah, um, you know, like, get your shit together. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, he, so what, four, probably four years ago, five years ago, um, that he put out a song called Kush, uh, which, you know, I think sort of reignited the, the discussion um, that, that Detox might be in the works. Um, I, of course, he did subsequently release an album, Compton, um, in which he was, you know, he's, he was sort of inspired by the making of the movie and um, straight out of Compton, uh, obviously. And, you know, I, I think um, whether, like, whether he ever goes back to finish it, I mean, he's clearly been working on it on and off for years, but at this point, like, when, when you consider, you know, what his business ventures are, um, it seems like he's spending a little bit less time in the studio and a little bit more time you know, in, in tuxes at uh, dinner parties, yeah. like, selling Beats headphones. Yeah, he's um, he's spending more time with Tim Cook than he is with, uh, you know, the game at this point, probably. But um, yeah. he's, uh, I, I still, uh, I actually, I, I got the impression um, that he had chucked the entire uh, project, and I just wasn't sure how, how massive I think the it's anticipation sort of around it, was it. Yeah. It's, 
it's definitely you get the feel of that obsessive Dre music freak who's who's you know you hear about this all the time something I've never been able to understand in music because you know I'm not a musician but that you know just has the, to be perfect kind of thing the audiophile obsessive yeah, yeah. and you know I mean, guys it's like Kendrick a, Lamar and the game yeah. and people Snoop who he's obviously helped tremendously kind of like you know not only do they they sort of idolize this guy they consider him a friend and mentor just like man put out the damn album you know throughout but the, the way that everybody talk. talks about him is like you know if it's not perfect if there's not the exact right thing or the right piece or the right you know snare in the right spot like it just it it's it's not going out Remin- um, and, reminiscent and, of early brother 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 podcast yeah exactly. exactly um yeah. no i mean perfect is the enemy of good in that guy's case and you know at the end of the day like it's a it's a tough trade off between quality control and um, uh, you know and actually being prolific. So yeah. Well, anyway, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and end this thing the way we end everything. With a wake of bodies, the way Suge Knight yeah. ends everything. <laughs> and end this thing like it's a uh, like a like a Tyson fight in Vegas. Ninety like a nineties rap feud. Yeah. Same the same for gangsters, times is changing. Young niggas is aging, becoming OGs in the game and changing to make way for these new names and faces. But the strangest things can happen from rapping when niggas get wrapped up in image and acting. Niggas get capped up and wrapped in plastic, zipped up in bags when it happens. That's it. I've seen them come, I've watched them go, watched them rise, witnessed it and watched them blow. Watch them all blossom and watch them grow Watch the lawsuits when they lost the dough Best friends and money, I lost them both Went and visited niggas in the hospital It's all the same shit all across the globe I just sit back and watch the show Watch everywhere that I go Ain't the same as before Watch people I used to know Just don't They can't be, but niggas can't hit, niggas they can't see. I'm out of sight now, I'm out of their dang reach. How would you feel if niggas wanted to kill? You probably move to a new house on a new hill and choose a new spot if niggas wanted to shot. I ain't a thug, how much Tupac in you, you got? I ain't no bitch neither. It's either my life or your life, and I ain't leaving. I like breathing. Cause nigga, we can go round for round, clip for clip. Four pound for pound Nigga, if you really wanna take it there, we can Just remember that you fucking with a family, man I got a lot more to lose than you Remember that when you wanna come and fill these shoes Watch everywhere that I go Ain't the same as before Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast uh, We're gonna end this podcast the way we end every podcast With, uh, what are you listening to? What are you listening to, Christian? Well, I've actually seen two movies recently, um, which is uh, like more in theaters than I probably see uh, in in most um, halves of a year. Um, but I actually saw them three days apart. I saw Dunkirk first, and then uh, and then Baby Driver. Um, Dunkirk, I thought, you know, is just an extraordinary piece of visual storytelling. Um, you know, very for for a war movie, uh, it is you know picks up in media race. It's um, uh, almost uh, no dialogue and, and almost no blood. Um, and it's sort of fascinating. Um, and absolutely the, no Nazis. And absolutely no enemies, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing um, the extent to which you, you are sort of drawn into the, the sort of psychological anguish of, um, 
uh, of the lead characters, you know, as they, they literally struggle and endure just to survive. Um, and, uh, and I strongly recommend, I mean, it just, like, I, you know, you walk out of the theater and, and sort of don't want to talk to anybody for, for about an hour. Um, it's a, it's a pretty intense flick, but, um, but it's definitely, it, it did exactly what I was hoping Chris Nolan would do by, by addressing something other than a sort of sci-fi genre. Um, he brought his incredible capacity for, you know, as I said, visual storytelling to, um, to a subject that I, uh, was actually interested in, unlike the fourth dimension. Um, and then Baby Driver sucked, like a lot. <laughs> it was an absolute piece of shit movie. I can't believe that you said it was good, Wyndham. Um, the weird part about this for me is that Edgar Wright uh, has historically made movies I really like, and Chris- Christopher Nolan has historically made cool-looking movies on subjects that I'm not that interested in, so I thought this was sort of a weird uh, swap. I thought it was... Baby Driver was just, like, completely disjointed. It was like every character was being directed to act in a different movie. Um, and uh, the soundtrack didn't redeem it for me. I don't, I don't know. I literally, I'm, I'm still so confused by it and hurt, and I want my $12 back. Wow. Wow. That's a, yeah. In my defense, I believe I, I said it was fun rather than, I'm not sure I was uh, vouching for its quality of story. But anyway, Jared, what are you listening to? Yeah, so um, I'm the one person on the Brother Pod who hasn't seen Dunkirk yet, planning on it this weekend, but I, uh, I've been kind of combing through old TV stuff through Netflix and on demand just when I have time, and, and hand, Hands Made Tale, I don't subscribe to Hulu, and, but it's on on demand, and uh, Alexis had read the book, my wife, and we were like, let's watch it. So uh, I don't know if either of you guys have watched it. I've heard a lot of mixed things. Um, I've actually heard mostly negative I actually really like it thus far, and I think it's pretty interesting, pretty cool, um, really well acted. Uh, I haven't gotten through the whole thing, admittedly, so I'm not going to go into too much, but uh, it, it was a surprise for me, so Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, Elizabeth Moss never disappoints. She's always good. And um, I am going to uh, talk about uh, But Beautiful by Jeff Dyer, um person we are interviewing um, at Port Elliot, and uh, I believe by the time maybe uh, we'll have time. interviewed by the time this is gone. But I will say that uh, I, I, it's a phenomenal book about jazz, um, and I, I admit to being an absolute, uh, um, you know, ignorant, absolutely ignorant when it comes to jazz. But the way that this book is written uh, is making me incredibly curious and deep dive into the history. And so uh, thank you to Jeff Dyer for, for expanding my horizons. Uh, I, um, you know, I'm fat, again, it's, it's any, anything with this rich a history um, is so worth exploring. And, um, you know, have the, the lack of exploration I've done thus far is uh, really helping me <laughs> uh, be, uh, you know, a sort of wide-eyed, even at this age, in, in my exploration of it. So very cool. So you guys want to share some songs on the playlist? Absolutely. All right, go for it, Wyndham. Um, I am going to... <sighs> I'm going to throw on uh, Get Lucky by Daft Punk. All right. Nice. Um, Apropos of nothing. Christian? <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, yeah, I'm going to put on Kiss Off by the Violent Femmes. Wow. Nice. Uh, Christian and I just swapped decades. Yeah, exactly. And uh, 
God, you guys threw me off because I was waiting for one of you guys to put on something that was related to fine ones. Um, so, you know what? I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do uh, G-Thing by Dre. Perfect. Ain't right. nothing but. Well, wait, I don't think that album's on Spotify. Ooh, if it's not, which I think you actually are right, because I think I was looking for it the other day. I'm going to backtrack. You know Another what I'm gonna great do? Dre and Snoop song next episode. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't know anything. I'm a. I'm a chronic. Uh, that that's my jam. So I'm actually going to go to one of Ivine's early, uh, early projects and somebody that I know you guys won't put on on this playlist. And I'm going to do one of my favorite rock songs, and it's "Born to Run" by Springsteen. Totally nice. different direction. That's uh, my favorite Springsteen song. So there you go. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks, guys, for hanging out. And um, Yeah, it's fun. We'll check out you guys next week. Check out the Defiant Ones. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.